We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning. My name is uh, Sam. If we had not had a chance to meet yet, I'm glad that you're here. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, welcome. We are in week six of our seven-week sermon series through the doctrine of the Trinity, and I'm excited to get into um, the content of the sermon today. Before I do, I have a couple of quick announcements. Uh, The first is that our membership weekend is coming up, September 18th. That is uh, sort of the first step in our... uh, in our membership process, the first step along the way to becoming a member. It's also just a good weekend event to attend if you're curious about membership here at Emmaus and curious about a a biblical view of what what even is church membership and how do we do church membership here at this church. So that is kind of the the first step in that process, and that's the event to attend to get those questions answered. The time is is, uh, incorrect. We've changed the time, so now it's uh, beginning at 8, I believe. So it's, it's Saturday morning. Um, it's not Saturday afternoon into the evening. It's now Saturday morning. So uh, keep that in mind. And then the second announcement uh, for Emmaus members is that uh, today or tomorrow, I think it's tomorrow, is the deadline for your um, blockout dates for planning centers. So if you're serving, uh, and if you're a member, you should be. So if you're serving and uh, you, you need to account for this next section of, of uh, Sunday mornings to plan for, um, and you're going to be out of town for, for some of those days, this uh, tomorrow is the deadline for you to, to do those. So just go ahead and make today the deadline. Um, and uh, yeah, so we can begin to schedule for the next round. With that said, uh, I'd like for us to get started. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16, and uh, then place your Bible to the side. And stand with me. I'd like for us to stand together as we receive, or as we confess the Nicene Creed together. So John chapter 16 is where we're going to be after we're done reciting the creed. I hope you guys have enjoyed reciting the creed as much as I have. This has been a really uh, uh, surprising treat for me. And we've mentioned this every week so far in the series, but uh, what we're doing here is a is a globally Christian unifying thing. There are countless believers across time and space throughout church history and across the globe who have used these very same words in order to swear their allegiance to the triune God that we worship. And so it's a unifying thing. Simply by reciting it together, we are bound uh, by confession to other believers across time and space. And so it's a really unifying thing. I hope it, it is received that way for you. Again, it's, it's, it may be uncomfortable for Western evangelicals of the 21st century, but it is a very normal Christian thing to do uh, in the grand scheme of things. So we're going to recite this together. We're going to read all of these words together aloud, and uh, let's begin. We believe in one God, the Father all-governing, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being. 
who for us men and because of our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures and ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son, who spoke through the prophets, and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the remission of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Let me invite you to pray with me. Holy Trinity, with the words of the creed still fresh on our lips and in our minds, we are reminded that we are a part of your one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And as such, our hearts go out to our brothers and sisters who are a part of this same body in Afghanistan. They are still very much in danger, and there are many more who are not yet part of your kingdom who suffer in fear over there as well. Lord, we lament and decry the many contributions of evil and folly that have eventuated in this situation where we look on from the other side of the globe, helpless and heartbroken. Yet, as a gathered body, Lord, we remember that You delight to shame the strong with weakness. You delight to shame man's wisdom with folly. So even now, we beg You, believingly, to turn this evil for good. Intervene and work miraculously to deliver those in danger. And for those appointed to suffering, give them endurance and faithfulness to the end. Protect them from despair and use the evil committed in the name of a false God for your glory, O Lord. We call on your justice. We ask that you slay the wicked, either by bringing them into your son like you did with us, like you did with your servant Paul who terrorized your body, or by bringing your fury on the oppressors in this life. We ask that you stop the Taliban in their tracks and humble them under your mighty hand. And now as we turn our attention to your word, Holy Spirit, would you administer these words of our Lord Jesus Christ to your people accordingly. Do with them what I could never do with a mere sermon. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'm going to cheat this morning and give you the punchline, the devotional payoff, if you will, of this sermon right here at the very beginning, simply because it's just too spectacular to wait until the end. So here's the takeaway. Because of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, this glorious, holy, transcendent, powerful, beautiful trinity that we have been contemplating all this month is ours. 
because of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, this God is ours. He is for us. He's our God. The Trinity is the overflowing source of all goodness and joy. Trinity is eternal, infinite, bound by nothing, limitless in wisdom and power, the standard and source of all beauty, maximally alive, pure, unfiltered, holy love and life. That's who the Trinity is. The Trinity is an everlasting fire of white hot holiness which burns eternally and never diminishes or changes or strengthens because he is infinitely strong. The Trinity is overflowing plentitude of glory and love and holiness and goodness. That's who this God is. And because of our sinful condition, in our sinful condition, we fallen creatures remain outside of that divine love, that world without end. Without the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we are prevented from ever enjoying this infinitely joyful God, cut off from enjoying the divine beauty of the Trinity. Guys, even the work of Christ, even the work of Christ, apart from the Spirit, remains outside of us. Christ has accomplished the work of our redemption to atone for our sins, to establish our righteousness, and to restore fellowship with God once again. He has done the work. It's accomplished. It's finished. But apart from the Spirit, all of that redemption accomplished remains outside of us. But because of the Spirit, we are united to Christ. His work is applied to us and we are brought into this triune life and are partakers of it by grace. So let me say the point again. Because of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, that God that I just described to you is our God. He is for us. All throughout the scriptures, God offers this promise. I will be their God and they will be my people. And God in the person and work of the Holy Spirit makes good on that promise. He says to us in the person of the Spirit, I will be your God, Emmaus. And we, in and by the Spirit, reply, we shall be your people. Now this morning, I want to look at John chapter 16. That's the payoff. Now let's get there, okay? That's the, that is the punchline. Now I want to get there. Do a little reverse engineering. John chapter 16. This is an important passage in which Jesus introduces the person and work of the Spirit. And like previous weeks in this sermon series, I want us to briefly examine this passage on its face, on the surface, and then I want to dig deeper and consider its implications for what we can know about the life of God in himself. And then we'll apply this doctrine of the Trinity to our hearts. So John chapter 16, we're going to begin in the second half of verse 4. These are the words of God. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now for those of you who are with us in our 
series through the Gospel of John. This is a bit of a refresher for you, but let me remind you of where this passage is located in the narrative of John's Gospel. These are the final moments that Jesus shares with His disciples before His death on the cross. These are deeply intimate moments. By now, He has officially concluded His public ministry. And so between chapters 12 and 17 of John's Gospel, everything that we read about was in the presence of His disciples alone. Deeply intimate chapters. Jesus, with a heart brimming with love and compassion for His clueless friends, is leaving them with intimate words of comfort and instruction and hope. We learn from this passage that Jesus' death on the cross, His burial, His resurrection, and then ultimately His ascension are all necessary for His disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. Saying, I have to go. And sorrow has filled your hearts, but it's to your advantage that I leave. He has to leave first. And then he will send the Holy Spirit to them before they could receive him. Why is this? Why does he have to leave before the Spirit can be sent to us? Well, it's not as if the Spirit is unable to indwell believers who see Jesus in the flesh because of some, uh, you know, uh, crowded room or something, as if only one person of the Trinity can be with the people of God at a time. No, that's not it. So why is it? Why does Jesus have to complete this work before he can send the Spirit? And the reason has everything to do with the work of the gospel that Jesus was set to accomplish in his flesh. Jesus has a job description as the God-man, right? He is, he is uh, as the second Adam, he is fulfilling the law at every place where the first Adam failed. He is the high priest who is completing the work that none of the other previous high priests could accomplish. And that job description, that job, could not be completed until he ascended up, back up to the right hand of the Father. He has to go up to, to the right hand of the Father. He has to ascend back up into the heavenly temple and appeal with his blood sacrifice for us to be brought into the new covenant. So us receiving the Holy Spirit, that's a perk of the new covenant. That is, what it means to be brought into the new covenant is for the Spirit of God to indwell us. And for us to be brought into that covenant, our mediator, our high priest, Jesus Christ, has to complete his work. And the work is a total work, right? It's not just the incarnation. It's not just the death on the cross. It's not just his burial. It's not just his resurrection or his ascension. It's all of it. He has to complete all of it. And it's upon the... the, Uh, appeal to his blood sacrifice that he sends the Spirit to us. So he's saying, I have to leave for you so that I can finish the job and send the Holy Spirit to indwell you. Now the question is, why should that bring comfort to Jesus' disciples? Why is having the Holy Spirit in them better than merely having Jesus beside them? And since God is infinite in all his perfections, the benefits of having God the Holy Spirit indwell us are literally limitless. But one of the benefits that's relevant to our text and to the sermon, Jesus has already given in John chapter 14. So in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says this to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then Jesus goes on to say this in verse, tap, uh, in verse 23 of the same chapter. If anyone loves me, right? So he's talking about the same thing. We're loving God. The Father is gonna send the Spirit. We're gonna have the Spirit in us, right? So all of this is the same context. He goes on to say this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and he will come to him, the Father, and we will come to him, the Father and the Son, and we'll make our home with him. So he's saying, if you love me, you keep my commandments, the Father will send the Spirit. And then he goes on in the same context to say, if you love me, you keep my commandments, me and the Father will come to you. Me and the Father will make our home with you. Do you know what that means? What that means is that we don't actually have to choose between having Jesus or having the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Son and the Father as well so intimately that we can truly say they are living with us. We will make our home with you, is what Jesus says. The Holy Spirit supernaturally unites us to Christ, who is the vine, we see in John chapter 15. And he facilitates this communion with the triune God. That's why it's better for us to have the Spirit. Because when we have the Spirit, we have the Trinity, period. Jesus goes on to describe the Spirit's ministry when he comes at Pentecost in chapter 16. His ministry on earth is going to convict the world of sin, verses 8 through 11. He's going to guide the disciples of Jesus into all truth, verses 12 and 13. And preeminently, this is his primary work, he's going to glorify Jesus by taking what is Jesus's and declaring it to his disciples. Look at verse 14 with me. John chapter 16, verse 14. Jesus says, he will glorify me for, so this is how he's gonna glorify Jesus. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now think about what Christ is saying here. The Spirit is going to glorify Jesus. He showcases and he presents the glory of Jesus. He calls attention to and adorns the glory of Jesus. How? How does he do this? He does this by taking what is Jesus's, which is all that the Father has, and presenting it to us. So the glory that is Christ, the glory that is all that the Father has, the Spirit communicates to us in himself. This is how he communicates it to us. He comes to us personally with his own presence. He takes that glory in himself and he brings it to us when he comes to us. Now think about what this means for the Spirit. The content of the Spirit's glorifying ministry of the Son is what is Jesus's. All that is mine, he will declare to you. Which also is all that the Father has. So all that the Father has is Jesus's, and that's the content that the Holy Spirit communicates to us, which he could not do unless he himself has it. All that the Father and Son have, the Spirit can declare to us because he has in common with them. He communicates what he has. So think about it like this. From behind the veil of our creatureliness, Right? There are limitations for us as creatures. 
And from behind that veil, within the ineffable realm of divine mystery, where the Trinity dwells in inexpressible light, right? That world that we just cannot comprehend, that realm of godness. From there, the Holy Spirit brings forth the glory of the divine. He brings forth the glory of the Father and the Son to us, which he could not do unless that glory were his as well. This is why it's appropriate for Paul to describe the Spirit the way he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 10 through 12, he says, These things God has revealed to us, how? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So, So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The spirit reveals what is his. This is why the creed is right to confess that the spirit is the Lord and life giver who is worshiped and glorified together with the father and the son. Now this is where I want us to peer deeper by the spirit's help into the deep things of God, the depths of God. I want to ask, what does all of this imply for the triune life of God in himself? What does all of this imply for who God is in himself? Now, I want you to remember the principle that Pastor Joseph introduced for us the second week of this series. Here's the principle. God's work in history, in God's work in history, the infinite, that is God, is revealed in finite ways to the finite. That's us. We're finite. He's infinite, and he has to reveal his infinity to finite creatures in finite ways, because that's the only way we understand. Right? We can't, we can't understand infinity because we're not infinite by definition. And this means that God is no less than what he reveals in human history. He truly reveals himself. The words, the descriptions, the actions that we see God taking in human history are truly his. He is really revealing himself to us. So he is no less than what he reveals in human history, but he is certainly more. This is what theologians mean when they say that Scripture reveals God's nature analogically. The language of God in Scripture is not univocal, on the one hand, or equivocal on the other. What do I mean by that? Well, univocal language is when there is essentially a one-to-one correlation of what we're talking about. So I could say, I went to the bathroom at home, so I don't need to use the bathroom here at the theater. Right? There's a one-to-one correlation. That word bathroom means the same thing. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That's univocal language. Equivocal language, on the other hand, is when we have the same word, but the meaning is completely different. So I could say, I'm going to take my baseball bat up into the attic to fight the bat that's flying around up there, right? Same word, totally different meaning. They're they're unrelated at all. Analogical language, with analogical language, we have similarity and dissimilarity. So I could say, Pastor Joseph is a good man, and he and I enjoy good coffee together, right? That word good 
There is some relationship between me describing Pastor Joseph as a good man and me describing coffee as good. There's similarity, but there is also dissimilarity. And here's the point. All our language of God is like this. When we're talking about God, the referent that is God is never less than what we describe, but he is always infinitely more. So let's take an example. Humans may be wise, maybe more wise or less wise. We have wisdom. We are wise. And God is wise. But his wisdom is infinitely beyond our wisdom. It's not just different in degree. It's not just that we have wisdom and he has wisdom of the same kind, just more of it. It's different in kind. His wisdom infinitely transcends our whole concept of wisdom. And yet, there is some relationship to it. And this means, what does all of this mean? This means that no single description of the triune persons in the history of redemption should be projected back up onto God in an exhaustive sense. We can't take any any singular event or any singular description and just project that back up onto God in an exhaustive sense. These past two weeks, we've been talking about the relation of the Father to the Son. And we've been talking about how in history, God truly reveals himself, but we can't just take everything that happens in history and project that back up onto God, like uh, submission, for example. Jesus submits to the Father. We can't just take that and say, okay, because Jesus submits to the Father in history, submission must be his job, period. In, in, in eternity, you know, in the, in the uh, infinite Godhead, there has to be authority and submission. No, that's inappropriate. That is to treat these things as univocal, when in reality, they are analogical. So that, that clear? That principle's clear? That God is always infinitely more than what we describe. So we have to take all of the analogies that Scripture gives us when we're, when we're making judgments about who God is. The same principle must be applied here to the Spirit. It's not for nothing. That, that there are two passages I just read, John chapter 16 and 1 Corinthians 2. It's not for nothing that the passage we just read from John chapter 16 portrays the Father, Son, and Spirit in social terms, right? Where the, where the Father and Son and Spirit are distinguished as three distinct persons. That's how John 16 describes them. And yet, the passage we just read from 1 Corinthians portrays the persons of the Trinity in psychological terms, where the Father, Son, and Spirit are portrayed as God, thought, and mind. One theologian writes this, while social analogies preserve the real distinctions between the spirit and the other persons of the Trinity, psychological analogies preserve the simple oneness of God by portraying the processions of the spirit as internal to God's being. All that to say, when we wrestle with God's word, with what God's word reveals about the Trinity, we have to do so in a way that does justice to all of what scripture speaks analogically about God and not just a couple of places. So for example, the spirit is named spirit. Breath in the Greek, same word for breath or wind. And so as we see in John chapter three, Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus There is something about the analogy of a person breathing out air or wind, blowing through trees that fittingly corresponds to the spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. That analogy does have a a similarity, right? 
The Father and Son breathe out the Spirit. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there is something about that analogy that truly does reveal to us who God is in Himself. But that's not all that the Scripture says about the Spirit. If it were, we would be forced to think of the Spirit as an impersonal force like electricity. Scripture says other things about the Spirit. So what else does the Scripture say about the Spirit? Now, there are many directions we could go from here, but I want to call your attention to two of the primary names that the Scripture attributes to the Spirit. They are love and gift. First of all, love. Now, love is a divine attribute, which means it's an attribute of the one divine essence that all three persons of the Trinity share. It's not as if the Spirit has more love than the Father or the Son. They are one in nature and power and glory, which means they are one in divine love as well. However, from our perspective, as finite creatures who experience this timelessly eternal God in time, who experience this God this way, there are certain attributes that are appropriated uniquely to certain persons. So while love is a divine attribute that we properly ascribe to the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit is uniquely associated as divine love all throughout the Scriptures. He appropriates that attribute uniquely for us. So for example, remember that glorious passage from Romans chapter 5, where Paul says that in Christ, because we have peace With God, through Christ, we can rejoice in our sufferings. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Why? How can we have all of these things? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of God, God's love is ours because the Spirit has been given to us. To receive the Spirit of God is to have divine love poured into our hearts. And it's important to note that the Spirit described in this way is described as the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, which means when we receive the Spirit, we receive the Father and Son in love, in their love. We are brought into that divine love when we receive the Spirit. So that's one name, love. Gift is also a name attributed to the Spirit. All throughout John's gospel, for example, the Spirit is described as gift. In John chapter 3, verse 34, Jesus is defined as the one whom God sent, uttering God's words and giving the Spirit without measure. In John chapters 4 and and chapter 7, he's described as the gift of water, of life, overflowing rivers. That's who the Spirit is. And then all throughout the book of Acts as well, we read about believers receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is divine gift. Is it any wonder then that whenever we read in the Scriptures about the church receiving gifts or uh, producing fruit for the upbuilding and the growth of the church, it is uniquely associated with the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, the Spirit manifests His generous presence by administering gifts to the church for their upbuilding. They edify one another with the gifts that He has graciously given. He is the gift. The Spirit is God's gift. 
and he shows his generous presence, he manifests his presence with individual spiritual gifts for the body, for upbuilding the church. And in Galatians chapter six, we read about the fruit which the spirit, the spirit personally graciously produces in the lives of those who walk by his generous leading, those who walk by the spirit. And in both of these examples and more of love and gift, we learn that the spirit's relation of origin, his eternal relation to the father and the son is a double procession. He is breathed out, he proceeds eternally by both the Father and the Son. Now remember, what distinguishes the Father, Son, and Spirit in the Trinity is the, their eternal relation of origin. That's a, that's a phrase that we've repeated throughout this, throughout this sermon, uh, sermon series, their eternal relation of origin. And what it's getting at is what distinguishes the persons from one another in, in uh, the Trinity itself. In God himself, what distinguishes in the inner life of God himself outside of time and space, what distinguishes Father, Son, and Spirit from one another? And it's that the Father is unbegotten. We've learned this the the past couple of weeks. The Father is unbegotten. He eternally begets the Son. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father. He is eternally generated by the Father. And now we, we learn that the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is a pattern that is hinted at all throughout the Scriptures. Sometimes the Spirit is described as the Spirit of the Father. Sometimes He's described as the Spirit of the Son. In John chapter 16 alone, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit. And He also says, I'm going to ask the Father, and the Father's going to send the Spirit. Right? So that communicates something truly about who God is and Himself. Therefore, the Spirit in the life of the local church is the manifestation of God's infinite, self-giving generosity. He is the gift of the Father and the Son. He is the love of the Father and the Son. And this is why, for example, the final section of the Nicene Creed is not simply the theological leftovers. Has it ever felt that way for you? As we're, as we're reciting the, the Nicene Creed together, we get to that final paragraph with the Holy Spirit and then it, it, it can feel like it's just all the theological leftovers, okay? So we gotta talk about the, the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection and uh, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church and baptism for the remission of sins. Let's just throw all of these things together. Well, that's not the case. It is the person and work of the Spirit. It is in the person and work of the Spirit that God's goodness is communicated to us, real people. He turns us into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. He leads us into truth through the teaching that of, the, of the apostles that he inspired. He baptizes us into Christ for the remission of sins. Now let's make this personal for a minute, brothers and sisters. Think about when you became a Christian. When you became a believer, you saw in Christ the satisfaction of your need. You saw in Christ the satisfaction of your need You realized you needed him. You were broken and you needed binding. You needed atonement for sin. You needed a cleansed conscience. You needed righteousness. You needed a name to plead before the Father so that you could have restored fellowship with him. And when you first had ears to hear the good news of the gospel, when you heard the goodness of the life, death, 
and resurrection of Jesus, the news that Jesus Christ was God, the Son incarnate, who was enfleshed in human nature so as to die the death that you deserve, to live the life that you could not, to pay the penalty of your sin and to satisfy the righteousness of God, to bury your sins in the grave and to blaze a trail for you to follow in the resurrection. When you heard all of that, when you heard all of that good news and the great news that all of this was offered to you and you could have it by faith in Christ, when you heard that good news, you had ears to hear, Christian, you accepted it. Something in you welled up to say, yes, I want in on that. I want that. Something in you said that. But for most of us, we didn't accept that good news the very first time we heard it, did we? We had heard the gospel over and over and over again. Same message, no, no warmth in our hearts. Why? What changed? Did Jesus somehow change? Did the news somehow change between the times that you heard the gospel and rejected it and the times that you heard it and said, yes, I want that? No. The change was entirely owing to the generous, self-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. At some point, the Spirit took what was His and the Father's and the Son's and presented it to you in a way that awakened your desire. At some point, this message that you had heard, perhaps many times, became beautiful. And it's not that the message changed. It's that the Spirit's self-giving, generous ministry was applied to you. He came to you. He brought to you what is the Father's and the Son's. As the one who proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, the Spirit is worshipped together with the Father and the Son when He leads us to adore Christ. That's what the Spirit does. When you worship Christ, that's the Spirit at work. The Spirit is the consummator. He is the perfecter, the gift, the absolute expression of divine self-giving. He adorned and glorified creation when he hovered over the face of the waters, as Genesis says. The cosmos was created out of nothing from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. The Spirit spoke through the prophets and anointed kings and priests all throughout the Old Testament. He came upon mighty princes to do great works. The Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and divinely conceived in her the human nature of Christ hypostatically united to the divine Son. The Spirit anointed the man, Christ Jesus, the second Adam, as he fulfilled his redemptive ministry on earth. It was by the Spirit's power that Christ was raised from the dead. And then the Spirit himself came in power at Pentecost at the behest of the Father and the Son so that he could take all that was theirs and make it known to Christ's disciples. He applies Christ's saving work to his people effectually. He baptizes us into Christ. He brings us into one holy Catholic, which again means universal, Catholic and apostolic church. It was by his power that Christ was raised from the dead and by his power, we will be. He beautified and completed the first heavens and the earth and he will beautify and complete the new heavens and the earth. He illumines our minds to behold the beauty of Christ with his own renovative, creative presence. He does that. He, he, he shows us Christ in himself. When he himself comes to us, he shows us Christ. 
He teaches us the scriptures and reveals to us the depths of God. He, the divine gift, fills the church with gifts. He fills the church with his presence manifested in gifts. He graces us with the divine life that he shares eternally with the Father. And he does this by uniting us to Christ. The spirit for us is infinite generosity. Do not take him for granted. Do not take him or his ministry for granted. He has given us everything. I want to close with two pastoral charges, one to the believer and one to any non-Christian who may be here with us this morning. To the believer, the charge is this. Worship the Trinity by the Spirit. Worship the Trinity by the Spirit. Oh, Christian, do not neglect or minimize such great and precious promises that are ours by the Spirit. Do you love Christ? Christian, do you love Christ? Do you worship Him? Do you want Him? Know then that it is by the Spirit that you do so, and it will be by the Spirit that you continue to do so. We are utterly dependent on the Spirit of God, and we would be wise to remember that. I'm reminded of Jude, verse 20, when Jude instructs his disciples to build themselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, awaiting waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to the eternal life. Pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, exactly how this is worked out is a mystery to me. And I readily acknowledge that the charges, these charges to pray in the Spirit and to keep oneself in the love of God are commands that I continue to ponder in amazement. They are deep mysteries that feel out of reach from my comprehension. How exactly does one pray in the Spirit? How does one keep oneself in the love of God? What does that even mean? They escape my comprehension, but I can tell you this. They keep me desperate. They compel me to stay close to Christ. They stir longings in my heart. Oh, to be in the love of God. Oh, to continue to walk in Him. Oh, to pray by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit and journey ever further into the inexhaustible love of God, to go further up and further into His glories. Our souls go on that journey, brothers and sisters, by the Spirit. So worship the Trinity by the Spirit. Be grateful for the gift of the Spirit. And non-believer, if you're here today as a non-Christian, we are happy that you are here. And, and, and can I just acknowledge, you may feel befuddled by all of this. What, is, what does all of this mean? You, you may feel a little confused, but you also may feel a longing in your heart, like what I described when I described the gospel to you and described how we Christians felt that uh, amen welling up in our hearts to say, yes, I want that. I want to be in on that. And if that's you, let me just assure you, you can get in on it today. This mysterious, confusing life of God, you can get, on, get in on today. So would you have Christ? Would you be baptized into his body? Would you be brought into his church? Then come to him with the empty hands of faith. You can be sure that is what God requires of you. And if you would have him, you can be sure that God's spirit is ushering you into the divine love of the Trinity. The Spirit takes what is the Son's 
and brings it to us. And so if you desire to come to Christ by faith, it is by the Spirit's lead that you desire that, and no obstacle stays, uh, stands in your way. The Apostle Paul says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, that does not mean that you're asked to figure out the particulars. You're not asked to get into the Holy Spirit so as to, so as to declare your allegiance to Christ. You are asked to come to Christ by faith. So as the Christians prepare to take this meal of Holy Communion together, I want to call you, non-Christian, I want to call you to take the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin. Call out to Him, and He will deliver you. Tell Him you want Him to atone for your sin, to restore you to fellowship with your Creator. This offer, this offer is as real as the seat you're sitting in, friend. So if you're not a part of Christ's holy Catholic and apostolic church, if you're not a Christian, don't take this meal. Instead, take the Christ that it signifies by faith. And if you have any questions about what that looks like, we would love to talk to you about it. I would love to talk to you about it. And now believers, as you prepare to take this meal together, to share this meal together, I want you to ponder the mysteries of this meal. Don't check out yet. Right? I still have a couple more things to say. If you're a Christian and you have clung to Christ by faith, he and the Father commune with you by the Spirit and he has promised to meet you here at this table. He's promised to meet with you here at this table. But in another sense, at this table, it is we who meet with him. It's we who are brought to him. By virtue of our union with Christ, the Spirit takes us up into heaven, so to speak, to commune with Christ at this table. In a mysterious way, we are receiving heavenly nourishment at this table, at this communion meal. It's not magic or automatic, right? The bread and the cup don't have any intrinsic properties apart from their material substance as bread and juice. The bread and the cup don't have any intrinsic powers. But for those of us who are holding on to Christ by faith, the Spirit graces us and feeds our souls even with bread and juice. Now, it's not going to feel this way all the time. It may not feel like anything miraculous is taking place. But that is the scandal in the mystery of the ordinary means of grace. God changes people. He changes people. He sanctifies people. He shapes them. He nourishes them with his own presence. And he uses the least impressive means to do that. How does he do that? How is God creating a new humanity on planet Earth? What are his means? Words, bread, wine, and water. That's it. That's what he uses to transform people. That's what the Spirit is delighted to use to transform people. Water, wine, or juice in this case. Bread and water. <laughs> Now, you don't have to feel like the Spirit is doing this, like He's nourishing you. Don't artificially drum up emotion that isn't there. You don't have to feel like He's doing this, but you are asked to believe God's Word that the Spirit is, in fact, nourishing you. I'm going to pray and then ask for the believers to come down. You'll come down uh, here uh, along this aisle to my left, receive your hand sanitizer, and then come over here, receive the elements, and return to your seat along this aisle to my right. Let's pray. 
Grant us, Heavenly Father, to celebrate today the blessed memory and remembrance of your dear Son, to engage in it, and to announce the benefit of his death so that as we receive a renewed increase and strengthening by faith and in all goodness, we might all the more confidently call you our Father and glory in you through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray to you. May we, by your Spirit, who is eternally the Spirit of Christ, commune with you through Christ at this table for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Emmaus, your good shepherd has prepared a table for you in the wilderness, so I invite you to come, eat and drink and be grateful. Come and take. The following audio is from Emmaus KC. More information about Emmaus KC is available online at www.emmauskc.com.